I hope you brought your Bible today. If you did, please turn to Matthew chapter 2. If you didn't bring one and don't have one on your phone, uh, you can look around in some of the seats around you, see if there's a Bible there. And if you don't have a Bible, I really would like for you to have one. Please come see me after the worship service, and I will give you a Bible. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. So, um, first book in the New Testament. You know, the way that I learned how to find Matthew, open the Bible about halfway up. That gets you kind of to the Psalms, open the Bible another halfway up to the back, and it puts you around Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the same, during the time of King Herod, I'm sorry, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. Now, I want you to take note of this because we're going to look at this at the very end of the message. Look at this verse 6. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact Time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. Well, he's just lying right there, isn't he? And after they had heard the the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Have you ever had an aha moment? I'm sure you have. An aha moment when this, you know, the light bulb goes off in your mind. There's this new illumination. You, you, you're seeing something new that you haven't seen before. Um, something that previously was hidden or dark to you becomes lit up. Um, sometimes, if you're like me. That aha moment, and I think these are the most, maybe the most important ones or when you have an aha moment about yourself or about another person. Um, And sometimes that can happen in rather uh, maybe trivial ways where you see someone at the store or out on, you know, out and out. I think I've seen you before. I I know you, you look familiar and you think about it, you think about it, you think about it. And then, you know, five minutes later, you're like, aha, yeah, that was so-and-so. Now I remember that kind of an aha moment. 
But then there's these more meaningful, important aha moments where you're like, wait, I'm seeing something about myself that I didn't know was there or about someone important to me. And I want us to maybe have an aha moment this morning about ourselves. I remember um, uh, kind of a fun aha moment uh, in, in our family was when Melissa and I had an aha moment about our third child, Kate, when Kate was just a little girl. Now, uh, if you've been in this church for a while, you know I've got five kids, and the one that you probably know least about is Kate. She's a quiet child. Uh, Kate was just, she as a little two, three-year-old, she was as cute as can be, I promise you that. She was as quiet as can be. She was as perfect as you can be. She was a rule follower. You could expect nothing but the best from Kate. And then we discovered that Kate also had a um, kind of a sneaky side. Because Melissa was uh, in a room, straightening out a room, cleaning a room, or something like that. And she discovered in Kate's drawers this cachet this treasure trove of miniature marshmallow bags that Kate was sneaking and putting in her room. And so she would just eat those little miniature marshmallows um, at night, and we had no idea she was doing it. She was doing it for months. Um, so that perfect little Kate was a, a sneaky little Kate. There was this aha moment, ah, this insight into our daughter. That's what the word epiphany means, by the way. It's, just, it's this aha moment. And and this Sunday is a Sunday when we're celebrating this story uh, that is most associated with this church date epiphany, the story of the, the Magi. Vicente called them the wise men. Uh, that's because we, that's the best word that translators have, or the best way that translators have thought of to help us understand what does it mean to be a magi? Because that's the word that's in the text. The magi, well, there's some wisdom that goes with it. How did they get that wisdom? Well, they studied the stars. They thought if we study the stars, if we study the night sky, there is important wisdom to uh, to to be had. Um, and. I want us to think about the the Magi and how they were filled with uh, such great excitement as they saw this star. The star may well not have been a star, could have been um, some other astronomical phenomena, the the, the conjoining, the, the alignment of Saturn and Jupiter in the night sky. Apparently that happened three times in the year 7 B.C., which may fit the timeline of Jesus' birth. Herod, King Herod, who's in the story, uh, Herod the Great, is alive during the story, where Herod the Great died in 4 B.C. That's the historical fact. And so um, it kind of fits the timeline. could have been uh, the alignment of Jupiter and Saturn, which happened numerous times in the year 7 B.C. But what is most important from the story is not the content about the star, but the content about the characters, the magi. But, as I mentioned, King Herod is in the story. 
And there are other characters in the story as well. These Jewish religious leaders that Herod uh, calls into his court to ask some questions of them. So what we're going to do today is we are going to look at these different characters and how do they respond to Jesus. And to help us do this examination, I want us to write down a few key words about each of the characters. So we're going to have some key words on the screen this morning that I came up with. You might not like my keywords. You might come up with better keywords, and that would be wonderful if uh, you thought of better keywords. You can write your own if you don't like mine. But we're going to start with a magi. And maybe as we go through these words, you will identify with these words. You might say, yeah, that sounds like me. And you might have an aha moment about yourself. So let's start with the Magi. Um, key words for the Magi. Let's start with the word searching. Uh, because the Magi would have traveled hundreds of miles to see Jesus. Just the, the use of the word term Magi indicates they were far to the east. It's likely that they traveled a thousand miles, maybe a few hundred miles less than that, but a long way. That's a long journey to go see this new king of the Jews. What does that indicate? Well, it indicates that their study of the stars was not simply a hobby because you don't travel hundreds of miles back then for a hobby. Maybe today you would travel 100 miles for a a hobby, but, but not back then. No, they were studying the stars because they believed it gave them some insight into the divine some answers about the world outside of us, about God. They were searching for some answer to life that was greater than they. So we're on the search. The search was sustained by some spiritual hunger for God. And I think that's a good word, another word for the Magi, and that's hungry. They they had this hunger. They were hungry for something that this world cannot satisfy. And everyone has a hunger for something, a deep hunger. I want you to think about what's your deepest hunger? I got a hunger. Um, My hunger is I have this hope. I have this hope where every wrong is made right in this world. I have this hope where this world will be transformed to where there is one day no more death, no more, as the Bible says, no more crying, no more pain, not another tear to fall from someone's eyes. I have this hope for the brilliant presence of God being wherever you look. That's my hope. Uh, that's, that's the most burning hope in my heart. And here's the deal about that hope. I cannot explain that hope apart from the reality of God. Uh, the Christian writer C.S. Lewis uh, does a great job of, and he's written a lot about this, a great job of explaining how that hope cannot be explained unless... We have a real God that is the source of that hope. He says that if there were no God, and if the, if the physical world were all that there is, then there is no reason to believe that we would hunger for anything 
more than just the natural world that we live in. We, we wouldn't hunger for a transformed world. We wouldn't hunger for, for, for some world that is different than it is now, if there were no God, any more than a fish would hunger for a world other than the sea. And you don't see fish trying to get out of the sea, do you? No, they, fish were perfectly designed for the sea. They're perfectly content to stay in the sea. They don't hunger for another world. And yet we as humans, we hunger for something more. We hunger for a world that isn't here yet. And the only way to explain that hunger is that there is a God behind that hunger. The Bible puts it like this in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. Um, the Bible says that God has also set eternity in the human heart. We have this hunger that this world, as it is now, cannot satisfy. And I worry about people not having a spiritual hunger, one that just moves uh, them to great lengths to seek and to worship the Lord. Um, You know, do we inconvenience ourselves in our search for the Lord? For the wise men, this search was costly to them. It cost them many miles. It cost them many months. The gifts that they brought were costly. Uh, That's one of the reasons why, by the way, um, we have the words in our hymn, We Three Kings. The, The suggestion is, well, these gifts are only ones that a king could bring because of their their cost. So another word that I think we can um, identify in the Magi is that they are inconvenienced. They went on to this great search that was sustained by this, this hunger of theirs for something this world couldn't satisfy, and so they inconvenienced themselves. They had to go see this, this child. I was thinking about the distance that the Magi traveled. Why didn't God just have three visitors from, a, or however many, not necessarily three, um, from just a few miles away? Um, he could have done that. It, it wouldn't have been any more or any less important um, of a aha moment for them if they had only traveled three miles or so. Uh, because a few mile, here's why, I think, because a few mile journey does not necessarily indicate true devotion, but rather could just be a sign of trivial curiosity. Eh, what do you want to do today? Eh, let's go check out this possible birth over there. Eh, sure, why not? No, they were willing to go many miles and be inconvenienced. I ran across this uh, quote from Ann Voskamp. She's a Christian uh Writer, you may have read one of her books. In The Broken Way, she writes this, A willingness to be inconvenienced is the ultimate proof of love. And we see that in the Magi. They were willing to be inconvenienced. Where a few-mile journey might not really indicate this burning desire in them. But they're a thousand-mile journey. That shows something. They're willing to be inconvenienced this this longing. And that longing, that willingness to be inconvenienced for Christ is completely opposite of what we see from 
the other figures in this story. Let's look at the Jewish religious leaders in the story. Herod had close by him Jewish religious leaders so he could bend their ear, so he could ask them questions, so he could get some insight from them. What are a few of the key words for the Jewish Jewish religious leaders? Well, here's the first one that I thought of, and that's complacent. Once the strangers from the east, the magi from the east, arrived, uh, and, and Herod heard about this other king of the Jews, Herod called them, and the, the Jewish religious leaders, and, and he asked them, where is he? Where is this other king of Jews supposed to be born? And it's, it's easy. I mean, it's, it's, it's important for us to, to recognize this. They easily answer Bethlehem. They're like, oh yeah, it's Bethlehem. And then we looked at that quotation um, that Matthew includes. Yeah, it's Bethlehem. Because that's where the, the king is going to be born. Bethlehem. They just spit it out. So how far is Bethlehem from Jerusalem? It's about six miles. Six miles. And these religious leaders of Judaism... Do they go to meet this Messiah or even the possibility of the Messiah being born six miles away? No. They stay put. They are remarkably complacent. Surely they would have remembered that what that strange soothsayer, you know, Balaam from the Old Testament, he gives this prophecy. And surely the Jewish religious leaders would have been aware of this prophecy um, from, from Numbers, Numbers chapter 24. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. So uh, it's reasonable to think that the people in Jerusalem would have been seeing this sight in the sky, the whatever it is, the bright star, the Jupiter and Saturn aligning, whatever it is, they would have seen the star of the Jewish religious leaders. Huh, that's neat. What did Balaam say? A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter, this, this instrument of a king will rise out of Israel. And then they hear, yeah, by the way, We've seen the star. We think it's the Messiah right over there. Do they? Do they? Do the religious leaders go make that six-mile journey to go check it out? No, they are complacent. Complacency can kill spiritual hunger. These men were important advisors to Herod. Herod needed them to help him keep the peace between the Jews and the Romans. They were important to Herod. Life would have been made comfortable for these upper echelon Jewish leaders. Uh, Herod would have made sure that they would have seen him as an important benefactor. They were comfortable, and that made them complacent. Another word for the Jewish religious leaders. They were apathetic. Their complacency gave birth to apathy. They didn't care whether or not the Messiah was born six miles away. Complacency gave birth to apathy. They treated 
the Messiah as if they had heard that a local grocery store was handing out one free loaf of bread with every $50 purchase. Oh, I suppose that's nice if you are going to the store anyway, and if you really want a loaf of bread, yeah, free loaf of bread. Hmm. They're apathetic. One thing that C.S. Lewis, let's go back to him, uh, does so well as he explains how central Christianity must be in your life in order for it to be true Christianity. So C.S. Lewis, you might remember he was an atheist for many of his, his, his like his later teenage years, early 20 years. Uh, our C.S. Lewis expert, uh, Wayne, may know exactly the, the years of his atheism. Um, but he was an atheist, and he didn't necessarily want to become a Christian. He called himself the most reluctant convert. How did he become a Christian? He became convinced that Jesus of Nazareth was who he claimed to be, and that is the Son of God. And if Jesus really is the Son of God, then he had to give his life over to Christ. And not just part of his life, but his whole life. Every part of his life had to go under the authority of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis says that Christianity cannot be departmental in your life. It can't be on the side. It can't be something that you turn to every once in a while. It has to be completely central to your life. It must direct everything. It must fill up everything in your life. Now on to our last figure, Herod. Herod, was he apathetic towards the birth of Messiah? I don't think he was apathetic. I think he was just antagonistic. He was, he was hateful. He was deeply troubled. He was stirred up on the inside. Um, what are some of the key words that we can use to describe Herod? Um, I kind of cheated on this first one, made it kind of a, compound hyphenated word, Um, but it's perhaps the most indicative word for Herod, and it's this. Herod was self-ruling. He insisted on self-rule. Herod was known for many things. He was known as a a very impressive builder. He had magnificent buildings constructed. The, the, The temple that he made for uh, for the, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem was, I mean, it was magnificent. It was much bigger than it had been before uh, under Solomon's uh, direction or when it was rebuilt after the exile. It was just this magnificent temple. Herod built magnificent palaces. Herod did build some level of peace between the Jews and the Romans. Um. There were some good things that Herod did. Herod, however, was completely committed to self-rule. Him being the ruler, not just of his own life, but for him to remain as king. Herod was ruthless towards anyone that he saw as a threat. Uh, So Herod, you know, you do the history and and you just read horrible things. Uh, Had his mother put to death. Um, 
Uh, some historians say that the only person that he really loved was his wife. Had her put to death because he became suspicious of her. Had three of his four sons put to death when he started thinking them as threats to his throne. So he was, he was uh, maniacal in, in many ways, especially towards anyone or anything that he considered a threat. He protected his kingship at all costs. He went to great lengths to do that. So a couple other words we might think of for Herod. He was calculating. He was manipulative, just as we see him trying to manipulate the, the wise men, the magi, so that he could protect his self-rule. You can imagine that when he heard the magi was taking this trip to, Jerusalem, to, to Bethlehem, it didn't take him long to come up with this, this manipulative, calculating plan. I want you to I want you to come back and tell me where he is so that I can go and worship him. Yeah, liar. So Herod was evil. Um, Herod is the big baddie in this story. He's so bad that Herod can become like the straw man in the story. He's so easy to knock down. Um, anyone would read this story and be like, yeah, Herod's, who needs Herod? He's, he's the bad guy. The problem is, it is too easy to imagine Herod, who is, well, he's the evil one, but it's too easy to imagine him as like this sinister, smiling guy, this coldly calculating guy. Um, it, it's too easy to picture that. To, as that, um, and I start losing sight that I may share some qualities with Herod. I don't identify myself as smiling sinisterly or calculating coldly so that I can use others uh, for my own good. It's only when I kind of tear that facade down of who Herod is and I start realizing, wait, I have my Herod moments too. I have these moments when I protect my self-rule above all else. Now, I do it much more apologetically than Herod did. I apologize to God for doing it. God, I, I know what you say regarding this, but I just I cannot do it at the moment. I apologize. But what have I done? I've still insisted on my self-rule. And I think we all need to examine our hearts. Do I do that? Do I have these moments where I insist on my self-rule? Do I do that regarding the money in my life and how I use it? Do I do that regarding how I, how I see my relationships and, and how I go about those relationships? Or do I, do I do that regarding being a generous person? Or like a, you heard me say earlier, I'm a lousy gift giver to those kids. Uh, I said, God, no, this is my stuff. It's for me. It's for, for me and my family. Do I become ingenerous, ungenerous? Uh, do I, do I, do, do I refuse to forgive someone who has hurt me deeply? But 
I just say, God, I know what you say. I just can't do it. I won't do it. Am I like Herod? Now let's talk about a word that we see all these three characters having in common. Uh, the, The Magi, the Jewish religious leaders, and Herod. What's a word that they all have in common? I think it's this. It's devotion. They all show devotion. It's easy to see the devotion of the Magi, but Herod, he's also extremely devoted to himself, to having power, to, to remaining in control, self-rule. And we see the Jewish religious leaders being devoted as well, not to God and the Messiah. They're devoted to this easy way of life, of remaining in their comfort, um, devoted to self-preservation, devoted to the, the comfortable way of life. We don't see any admirable sacrifice in their life. So there's two questions I want us to think through. To whom or to what do you show your devotion? If your answer is Jesus, Jesus is the one that I am devoted to, what do you point to as measures of your devotion? How do you show it? Are there sacrificial acts of obedience? When obedience to Christ is difficult or goes against the just the, the push of the culture, it's just it's just difficult to, to go against the or maybe the pull of culture. What are those sacrificial acts of obedience? Acts not because you think they get you closer to Christ, but because of what you believe about the identity of Christ. He is the Son of God. And that really is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? Who do you believe is Jesus, Jesus Christ is? Uh, that's the question that Jesus asked of his disciples. Remember that story where, where Jesus is, he's in Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. He's gathering around. He's like, who do other people say that I am? Oh, they, they say that you're like John the Baptist. You're some, some prophet. You're like Elijah. And then Jesus, and we can imagine him looking in the eyes of his disciples and maybe with this pause then say, so who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. So who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? Let's look at what our characters said that Jesus was. Who do you say that I am? A threat? That's Herod. Herod said Jesus is a threat. And I want to kill him. The Jewish religious leaders, what did they say that Jesus was? Eh, an accessory. Do I want Jesus in my life? Yeah, maybe. Maybe I'm on the fence. What do I do about that? And the Magi were convinced of this, that Jesus was the king. He was the king of kings. They worshipped him. They worshipped him, the story says. If Jesus is who he claims to be, the Son of God, why would I not be passionately pursuing him and giving him my all? So to close, I want to ask, want us to think, why is this story in the Bible? Only Matthew tells the story. Why is this story in the Bible? 
Well, Matthew is contrasting these foreigners going to these great lengths to get to Jesus. He's contrasting that with six miles away Jewish religious leaders in Herod, completely disinterested in Jesus. So what if you're like, maybe you don't want to kill Jesus, but you're like the religious leaders, you're like, I don't know, I'm, I'm on the fence, I'm a little apathetic. So this is where I want us to go back to that verse that I pointed out. Verse 6, if you have your Bibles in front of you, look at verse 6 again. It's what the Jewish religious leaders quote of Jesus. What do you do if you're on the fence? You're like, I don't, I don't know if I want to bend my knee to this Jesus. I don't know if I want him to be central in my life. It seems a little risky. This is what they say of Jesus from the Old Testament. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Okay? For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Jesus wants to be your shepherd. That's how you get off the fence. You realize that the one that you're bowing your knee to, that you're giving your life to, that you're, that you're making central to your life, he wants to be your shepherd. He wants to care for you. He wants to tend you. He wants to bring you by those, those, those pastures of green grass and the pools of, of, of fresh water. He wants to lay down his life for you. The shepherd being willing to lay down his life for the sheep. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. You realize that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is also the one who laid down his life for his sheep. What I'd like for you to think about an aha moment for yourself this morning. Who do you say that Jesus is if you say he's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords? Is there anything that you're holding back from him, from your life? Is there an area that you're not bowing your knee? Why don't we say a prayer for strength and for conviction this morning? Lord Jesus Christ, help the gifts that we bring to you be sacrificial gifts. Not because we think that they affect how you feel about us. Because when we read through the scriptures, we know that your love is a love that you give freely. It's a complete gift of grace. It's not something that we can earn in any regard. You just simply love us. So help us to have the courage to bring every part of our life under your rule. Maybe that's going to be our ambition for 2024, to bring every part of our life under your rule. Help us to do that. Show us where we need to do that. Give us courage and conviction so that we will do that. And we pray this in your gracious name. Amen.